My name is Jose. If you're visiting, I want to personally welcome you to Cypress Creek Church. We are a group of imperfect people that are doing the best we can to follow the one and only perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that you are here and you are um, in the middle, you're coming in the middle of our Mark through or Summer Through Mark series. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark and reading two chapters a week. Who's read two? I'm just kidding. Don't show me who, who read uh, two chapters a week. We're, we're in the middle of the gospel of Mark this week, Mark 7 and Mark 8, and we've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things so far. We've seen that he's a miracle worker, that he's uh, healed people that have been demon-possessed, delivered people, and also he has gathered up not only a group of disciples, but he has uh, caused quite the commotion in Israel at this time. Today, we'll be looking at two scenes in Mark 7 and Mark 8. And my hope is that whether you are just now starting your walk with Christ or you are way over here in your years and, and you've been doing this for a while, my hope is that each of us would have an encounter with the living God and surrender more to him through what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Let's pray together before we dive into the word. Father, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity to gather. I pray that your word would sharpen us this morning. I pray and ask God for us to respond to what you have done for us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. And we thank you for your living word. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning individually. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Mark chapter 7 in just a little bit. I'll start by reading in verse 24, but before, let me set the stage. Jesus just got out of a boat where he walked on some water. He is going from place to place, and then he's speaking to the teachers of the law, and they're asking him why his disciples are not doing things that they should be doing. They're not behaving correctly according to the law, and so Jesus clearly states it's not about the behavior. This isn't about behavior modification. This is about life transformation. It's inside out. It's not just about changing life. Good sermon. We're going to move right through. Then he goes to this place where he meets an unlikely character that I hope will inspire us this morning. Let's start reading in verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Outside, this is outside of Galilee, where there were a few Jews and a lot of Gentiles who are non-Jews. He, Jesus, entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. We've seen this time and time again. Jesus wants uh, to just mind his business, but he is overcome with a crowd. They can't get enough of this amazing teacher, this miracle worker. Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. We've seen Jesus heal and deliver people from demons, but there's something beautiful about this story. When we read the red letters, we see a lot of love. We see a lot of goodness. We always see that God is for us, but there are some verses that are harder to chew on and digest because they seem a little strong 
or stark to the WWJD bracelets that we sometimes wear and want to see Jesus. We'll look at two hard uh, confrontations that Jesus had with people this morning. Aren't you excited? I am. Let's see what happens. Verse 26, the woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. So she is a Gentile. Here's the cool part about this woman. We've seen Jesus have a lot of uh, conversations with and encounters with a lot of people. But this woman has more, is more similar to you and I than any other character. She's a non-Jew, unless you are Jewish, which that is super cool if you are. The rest of us are outsiders, according to the family of God. God chose this man, Abraham, and he told him in Genesis chapter 12 that he was gonna bless him, but not only that, that he was gonna bless his family, but not only that, that he was gonna bless the entire world through his family, the Israelites. And we're starting to see how this is taking place, God's blessing going to every end of the earth. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Matthew 16, similar, same story. He says that she was persistent. She begged Jesus. Verse 27, we see a strange response by Jesus, which we will dig into. Let's read it. First, Jesus says, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, if Jesus were alive today, this verse would cancel Jesus. There is so much in here that is super important for us to understand who are the children, who are the dogs, and what is the bread. I'm glad you asked. The children are the Israelites, the people of God. The dogs are any non-Jew, any Gentile. This woman would be the dog, and the bread is the gospel message, the message that the Messiah was going to come and rescue his people, the people of God, and bring them out of bondage into freedom. Now, this word first is huge because this agrees with what Paul says later on. He says that Jesus came first for the Jew, first for the Jew then to the Gentile, first for the Greek, uh, first for the Jew, then to the Greek. So first he says, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Verse 28, her response. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is amazing for two reasons, her responses. The first is that it shows her persistence. She doesn't allow something seemingly awkward, something that could be insulting to her to stop her from asking for her daughter to be delivered from this demon. She is persistent. But the second thing is incredible. She is humble and she's discerning. She discerns that he is Lord. The only time in the Gospel of Mark that we read someone calling Jesus by this title, Lord. And then discernment to understand what Jesus is saying, that he is comparing her to a dog. And so she humbles herself and says, yes, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's 
crumbs. See, if I'm one of Jesus' disciples, if I'm totally Jewish and I'm following Jesus at this time, in the moment, it's super important that we read in context. We know a lot that the disciples don't know in this scene. And what happens when we read what we know into the text, that's called eisegesis. When we read something that, or when we put something that we know into the text, what we want to do is be faithful, exegetical readers. We breathe out what the text is or breathe in what the text is teaching us. There is this uh, concept called historical presentism. It is this, when one applies contemporary moral judgments and worldviews to those of the past. Sound familiar? We do that a lot in our culture where we judge the past based on the values in contemporary culture of today. We do that with scripture too. So it's important that we read into what is Jesus really speaking to us through this story? I think that these disciples are probably nodding their head when Jesus responds in verse uh, 27. He's like, yeah, who are you? This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the healer. This is the deliverer. He doesn't have time for you. You are a non-Jew. But Jesus is showing them that he came to rescue the entire world. Verse 29 Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed in the demon gone. Let me ask you this question. How does this story inspire you to humble yourself before the Lord? Because we cannot earn a single ounce of God's love. It's a free gift called grace for you and for me, period. And so we can come to God, not only humbly, but be persistent. He says, ask and you will receive. This is a big prayer that this woman is asking for the deliverance of her daughter. Do I pray like that all the time? The answer is no, because my faith is like this sometimes. I I limit God and God says, no, ask. Be persistent. He welcomes her prayer, even though she was an outsider. Maybe you feel like an outsider. Maybe you feel like an outsider here in church. This is not where I belong. This is a foreign place for me. And the truth is, is that the one commonality that we have in this room is that we all have a need for a Savior. And Jesus Christ came for you and for me, no matter what our background is, no matter what we have done. See, the Gentiles were were set as outsiders, not because of what they had done, but because who they were. You and I are outsiders because of what we have done, but thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ that he paid for every sin that we have committed. He calls us sons and daughters. We have been adopted into God's family. Moving on, Jesus goes on to heal a deaf and mute man. He feeds 4,000 in a Gentile land, whereas before he fed 5,000 in in the Holy Land. Uh, He talks about this yeast of the Pharisees and and, and Herod and basically saying, hey, they're unbelieving. Don't be like them. Have faith. He heals a blind man. And now we're at the next scene in verse 27 of chapter 8. And this is the turning point of the entire gospel of Mark. In his book, Jesus the King, Tim Keller writes this about this scene. He says, Jesus is saying two things. I'm a king, but a king 
going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. Jesus turns this whole book upside down with these verses. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And this is now in the border region between the Gentile and the Holy Land. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, I love that it is on the way. Have you ever been on your way to a destination, maybe a vacation or, or a road trip somewhere, but the highlight was a conversation on the way? Anybody else? I think of uh, when we moved from Miami, Florida. Personally, I was 13. I moved from the beach beauty of, of Miami, Florida to Tomball, Texas. And mom and dad took us to Dairy Queen. Thank you, mom and dad. Made it a little bit better about every other, uh, about every other day. And then we took a road trip back to Tampa, actually, where I had a band competition. Yep, I was a band nerd. And it was the best conversation that I'd ever had with my dad, thankfully. It was the last conversation. We've gone to many places, and it is always on the way where those awesome conversations are. I just love that that is here. This is the context of this conversation, incredible conversation that Jesus has with my disciples. Who do people say I am? They replied, verse 28, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Isn't it interesting that they don't say, well, the Syrophoenician woman that we just talked to, she called you Lord. Isn't that interesting? In verse 29, he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? It's a personal question that Jesus is asking them and that Jesus asks all of us. Who do you say that I am? Remember walking uh, in Santa Monica, Venice Beach, a lot of action going on and in the midst of the basketball games and the workout buff dudes doing the bench press thing, there was a table and it said Jews for Jesus. And I was with my brother and I zoomed in to the table. I was about two years uh, into my walk with the Lord. And so I had all these questions like, what does it mean? You know, talk to me, educate me. I want to learn all about what it means to be a Jew for Jesus. Uh, and, and my brother was with me and he wasn't following Jesus yet. And and so as soon as they found out that I was a believer in Jesus, they wanted nothing to do with me. They focused on my brother and they said, who do you say Jesus is? And I was like, uh, I believe in God. And they're like, when did you start believing in God? He goes, I was born Catholic. I believed in God my entire life. And he goes, no, when did you start believing God? And my brother, a little frustrated, he goes, you don't understand. I was born Mexican. We're Catholic. I, I've always believed in God. <laughs> and they just kept on annoying him. And they said, that doesn't cut it. Who not your parents, not your religious upbringing, not your grandparents' culture, fill in the blank. Who do you say that I am? It's the question that Jesus asks all of us. And Peter, you gotta love Peter. He answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, with, with this part, it's interesting because we just read last week that Jesus told a demoniac to tell everyone his story, and now Jesus is telling them not to tell them. What's going on? Well, it's important to remember that Jesus is already being surrounded by everyone. This is the turning point in his ministry, and it's probable that more attention would probably get him arrested sooner. He knows that he's on mission, and every word is strategic. If we read it in context, that makes sense. But if I'm Peter, 
Here's what I'm feeling. Oh, man. I nailed the answer. I got it. And not only do I got it, but I am best friends with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I am friends with the Messiah who's going to rescue his people, who's going to bring us out of this Roman uh, uh, time and, and into independence as Israelite people. This is going to be awesome. If I'm Peter, I'm thinking about the dinner parties that I'm going to be invited, the status as his best friend. Like, where am I going to be seated? On the right or on the left? I mean, all the stuff that comes with being friends with important people. I was 15. I was in Boston for a five-week summer program at Berkeley College of Music. I was friends with this guy for three weeks. Three weeks, he and I are hanging out, going to place, Dunkin' Donuts, playing music, all this stuff. And one of his friends, who's visiting from Mexico, asks me, hey, is it true that he's the son of a Mexican president? And I'm like, no, no, he's my buddy. Like, we've hung out for three weeks. He's a normal dude. No. And he goes, no, I, I really think he is. This was before Facebook, all that stuff. So there's no way to, you know, figure these things out. And so then we're at Burger King, just me and my buddy. And I ask him, is it true that, like, you're the son of the president of Mexico? He goes, yeah. Yeah, that's true. You didn't know? I'm like, no, how did I? How am I supposed to know? You didn't tell me. We've been friends for three weeks. And you didn't tell me that you're the son of an ex-president of Mexico? That's a pretty big deal. Felt really important also at that same time. It's like, man, that's pretty cool. I can be invited to things. No, I didn't really get invited to anything. We had a good friendship, and I had lunch with the ex-president of Mexico a few weeks later, and that's about it. That's not a very fun uh, uh, end of the story, but here's the deal. He didn't want anybody to know because he didn't want that attention. Peter, I bet, was looking to see what, how he could uh, uh, enjoy the status of being friends with Jesus and then Jesus begins to teach. This is the turning point. Verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You talk about a buzzkill. I mean, they're riding high. They're saying we're in the presence of the true. It is true. You are the Messiah. And then he's saying that he must die. I mean, if I'm Peter, I'm telling him, I don't, I don't understand. You just rose people. Literally, I saw you rise people from the dead and healed. And you're telling me that you have to suffer? Those things don't equate. But God was on a mission. Uh, Peter, verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This word Satan or Satan means adversary. In any time that our concerns or agendas are contrary to those to God's, we are an adversary to God's agenda and mission here on earth. And if Peter, who is Jesus's best friend's can be called an adversary of God. You and I can be one too. Thankfully, he doesn't stop there. He keeps on reading. But I just want to stop there for a second and ask, what are your concerns in life in this season? Are they merely just for you and your status or for your pleasure or for your satisfaction? Or are you living out God's 
concerns and agendas. And what are those? Well, glad you asked. We have a mission statement here at church. We are to love God with all that we are. We are to love others as God loves us. And we are to make disciples. It's easy. It's the great commandment and the great commission. That's God's agenda. Those are God's concerns. Verse 33, uh, verse 34. Then he called to the crowd, to him along with his disciples. He's gonna show them the way. So he's saying, hey, gather up. I'm about to show you how to, how to live. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow the anointed one, the Messiah, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow now remember the contrast. I mean, they're just celebrating that they're with the most popular, most powerful human that's ever walked the earth. And now not only is he saying that he's suffering and that he's dying, but he's saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to lay down your life. You have to pick up and take up this cross. The cross was a criminal, a punishment for criminals. And so if you think that Seraphonician woman being called a dog is bad, Jesus is calling his best friends criminals. Take up that cross, you criminal, and then follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. There is a lie that has been around since the beginning of time. And that is if you choose to follow Jesus, if you choose to live life God's way, you will miss out. That's what Adam and Eve believed when the serpent lied to them and said, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be powerful. He wants you to miss out. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to enjoy. He doesn't want you to live a full life. Well, Jesus called that out in John 10, 10. He says that the thief, he comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. But Jesus came that we may have life in life Abundant. That is a lie that is still present here in our thoughts as we do this thing called life. That if, if, if we deny ourselves, if we lay down our, our lives, if we choose to take up our cross and follow Jesus, that we are going to miss out. What does this mean? Well, I think that Jesus, in his conversation with the Syrophoenician woman actually gives us the key to how we are to deny ourselves, how to take up our cross and how to follow him. It hit me right in the face as I was reading this this week and I can't wait to go into it. Okay, let's start. Deny myself. What does that mean? Well, it means self-sacrifice. The world says, don't sacrifice yourself, quite, quite the contrary. Gratify every, uh, every sense that self has. Live a self-gratifying life. If you want it, go get it. If you feel like it, get it. And Jesus is saying, no, lay down your life. Lay down your agenda. Lay down your concerns. Surrender is the first step in breathing in this full life that God has promised each person that has ever walked this earth. In Philippians 3, 7, 8, Paul got this and he's preaching it to the church in Philippi. He says, but whatever gain I had, and Paul had a lot of gain because he was an elder and a religious elite of the time. He says, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all the things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The Syrophoenician woman, she sacrificed her status. She sacrificed this, this division, this you know, uh, idea of being looked as an outsider, and she ran after Jesus, even to the point of being called a dog. She just wanted deliverance for her daughter, and she had the faith that he could do it. Deny ourself means self-sacrifice. The second is take up my cross. What does that mean? Well, it means self-awareness. The world says, don't take up your cross and be aware of your shortcomings. Hide those things. Hide your weaknesses. Pretend to be strong. Boast in what you have done because if you store up your accolades, more status will be given. More fame will be given to you. Pull up yourselves by your bootstraps. We've heard this. Yet the Syrophoenician woman, she's willing to be called a dog. Ephesians 2, 1, 5 plays this beautifully, how the cross is the, is the beginning. We start in a weak moment. We lay down our lives, but we don't end there. We end with power. Ephesians 2, 1, 5 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commanders of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, and all of us means all of us, used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But it doesn't end there. Verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Picking up our cross means being aware that we have a God-sized hole in our hearts, this emptiness that only he can fill. It means following Jesus, which is this last point. Following Jesus means selfless living, where the world says don't live selflessly, live selfishly. In fact, follow whatever is in your heart. Trust that. Jesus says, no, I, I gave up myself for you. I, I came to die to pay the price for your sins so that you can be in relationship with me too. And that also requires us to do the same. I think Galatians 2.20 encapsulates all of this beautifully. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, meaning our sin is nailed on that cross. It is finished. It is finished. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My favorite book besides the Bible is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. In the last two pages, he writes this about exactly what we are talking about. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. 
Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Worship team, you can come back up. We're going to close, and uh, what I want you to ponder, first is, who do you say Jesus is in this moment? Are you relying on his power, or are you relying on your power? Is your ego edging God out in this season of life? Or, or are, are you in relationship with someone like this Seraphonician woman who just needs a miracle? And, and you need to be persistently uh, praying for that person as you take this humble posture like she did. My question is, are we willing to lay down our agenda and pick up God's agenda? If you are able to, stand to your feet and let's pray.